0: Welcome to a special mini-season of Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts and a co-host of The Waves, Slate's show about feminism and gender. This episode is one of five, and they're all available in your feed right now, about second actors, that is, people who have made a dramatic career pivot at some point in their working lives. Today, I'll be talking with Nicole Auerbach, who made a shift from First Amendment lawyer to rabbi. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you, Jim. Would you mind, beginning with your kind of first job, tell me about your work as an attorney.
1: So I first clerked for a couple of federal judges, and then I went to work as a federal public defender in the Southern District of New York. So that was basically I was representing indigent defendants in federal court in Manhattan. What kind of help
0: did you give your clients?
1: Well, most of my clients were charged with things having to do with guns, drugs, or illegally re-entering the United States. Mm. I did have some white-collar clients who were charged with fraud um, and things like that. I had, I think, one child pornography case. Wow! So it was really the range of things that people are charged with in federal court.
0: And so you were appearing in court as well as giving advice to your clients. I mean, you were a person who actually... I was going to say put on robes, but I guess not quite here.
1: No, no. um, (laughs) I I always am envious of the lawyers in England who get to wear wigs and robes. But no, I just had suits. (laughs) So, yeah, we would have a calendar. And if it was our day to go get new clients, we would be assigned whoever was arrested and brought in that day and meet with them and, you know, be there for their first guilty plea and bail hearing and then work on their case until they either went to trial or pled guilty.
0: Either went to trial or pleading guilty, so...
1: And through sentencing, obviously.
0: What did you enjoy about this kind of work?
1: I liked learning about my clients and their stories. I liked figuring out how their worlds worked. I did not really enjoy working with my white-collar clients mainly because there's something about people, once they get used to telling their story, that they start to believe it. And Mm -hmm. so it's just very frustrating to work with them. But I loved working with my other clients who usually could make pretty rational decisions about what was in their best interest. And you learn things like, you know, someone who is charged with moving an amount of drugs that is going to send them to jail for 10 years— it doesn't make enough money, he still has to work as a carpet layer. Mm, right. Wow. <laughs> right, right. And you're like, wow, you work full time as a carpet layer and you're dealing these drugs? That sounds really exhausting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: you didn't stay in that position during your entire career as a lawyer. No. You became a First Amendment lawyer.
1: Yes. Yes. So, so my So
0: why did you make that change, first of all?
1: I really think there are sort of two kinds of public defenders there are lifers and there are those who burn out after four or five years and I really going into it had no idea which of those two I Mm -hmm. was and I ended up going on maternity leave right at the end of a murder trial uh, (laughs) that was very exhausting and when I came back I realized that I had burnt out and I was spending way too much time in jail having not done anything wrong.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) And,
1: and, um, yeah, I was sort of exhausted. And when I had been in college, I was trying to decide between going to law school or going into publishing. And I had spent um, my summers in college working for The New Yorker and had spent a year in the Daily News legal department. And so First Amendment and that kind of law had always been interesting to me. And so I decided to try to make a shift.
2: I've
0: just got to go back since you mentioned a murder trial. So how many murder trials did you participate in?
1: I think that was my only one.
0: Was that noticeable? We don't have the death penalty in New York, so it wasn't like
1: there. It, actually, there is a federal death penalty, oh, right, right. and that case had started off as, it's a terrible phrase, as a death-eligible case. Whoa. And so the real work of that case was convincing the government not to seek the death penalty against our client, which they did not. And then we took it to trial. And how
0: long were you working on that case?
1: A couple of years. Wow. Exclusively? No. No, I had a lot of other cases at the time. So you had to juggle many cases
0: at all times.
1: Not as many as public defenders in the state system do. We were relatively lucky that our caseloads were manageable.
0: All right. So you decided to move into First Amendment law because you had this interest. But having an interest and something of a background isn't the same as just doing that. How did you find that job? I mean, as an attorney who has worked in one particular aspect of the law, how do you kind of find that job that's going to put you into another type of situation?
1: When I was thinking of applying to law school, my mom put me in touch with someone who she said was the only happy lawyer she had ever met. Her name was Eve Burton, and she was then working at the New York Daily News, And so I talked to her, and she loved her job. And that's how I ended up working at the Daily News for the year before I went to law school. And so when I was looking to make a change, I reached back out to Eve and said, hey, I'm thinking about making this change. And she said, that's really funny. I know a firm that is actually looking, and she uh, put us together.
0: What is the daily life of being a First Amendment lawyer?
1: It mainly involves... Sitting at a computer and doing a lot of legal research and writing a lot of briefs.
0: So am I right in thinking that a company like the company that you work for has clients who are perhaps publications of various kinds and they go to the counsel with questions, which then the lawyers have to research? Is that how it works?
1: Yes. Or you know, the main types of cases that we worked on were libel defense. So, you know, you say something terrible about someone and get sued and we will defend you. Or if someone was trying to subpoena reporter's notes that they did not want to turn over, we would defend those subpoenas. Mm -hmm. Freedom of Information Act work. So what would that be? If reporters wanted to get their hands on some sort of public documents and the government was not responding to Freedom of Information Act requests, then we would seek those documents in court.
0: And so this work, I mean, did you did you like it? Were you a happy lawyer there?
1: I was not a happy lawyer. I had the two best litigation jobs I could imagine, I mean, the idea that coming out of my clerkships, I got to go to court every day was unheard of. I would talk to my friends from law school, and they wouldn't get to do a deposition for the first six years, you know, if they were at a big firm. And I really got into court. I was working on constitutional issues that were exciting. I had great colleagues. And... The day-to-day details of my job just ground me down. They were really soul-crushing. In what way did you find it soul-crushing? One really interesting thing about the move from criminal work to civil work was that in the criminal area, the federal defenders and the prosecutors are up against each other all the time, over and over again. And so there's an incentive to not screw each other over because you're going to be on the case with them the next day too. And in civil practice, I saw that fly out the window. You have people who don't feel like they are ever going to see you again. And so there is a nastiness to the practice of, you know, let's file this on Christmas Eve. You get really good at sort of snarky, mean letter writing, Mm -hmm. which is just not a part of my soul that I wanted to develop. Right, <laughs> I'm really good at it, but um, <laughs> but it turned out that it was not actually that fulfilling on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that some people really get a good adrenaline rush from going to court. You know, they talk about something going to trial, and they just—they light up, and they get really excited. And I just always wanted to throw up. I got the adrenaline rush, but not in a good way. Was it like stage fright? Yeah, it was. um, It was really just I got really anxious when I had to go to trial, which is funny because now I I speak in public all the time. Right. I'm a rabbi (laughs) and I don't have that feeling at all when I'm giving a sermon or teaching. So there's something about the adversarial nature of it that just was not a great fit for me. I really believe in the adversary system, and it turned out that being one of the adversaries was not a great fit.
0: Right, for you personally.
1: Yeah. So at
0: what point did becoming a rabbi enter your mind?
1: Well, we have to start off with the fact that when I became a lawyer, I was not yet Jewish. Oh. (laughs) So the idea of becoming Jewish came about, shortly after I met the man who is now my husband. And on our fifth date, he asked me, or I asked him, does it matter that I'm not Jewish? And he said, no, but I want my kids to be Jewish. And I said, okay. And then it got closer to our actually getting married. And I figured, well, if I'm going to raise Jewish kids, I should figure out what that means. And so I started reading lots of books and really fell in love with it. So That's sort of part A of becoming a rabbi was becoming a Jew. Mm -hmm. And I would say I spent a few years knowing that probably I wanted to not be a lawyer anymore, but not having any idea what the other thing was. I would sit and say, well, the parts of both of these jobs that I've really liked were learning about people and hearing their stories. And I really like working one-on-one with people. Maybe I should go into HR. And then I was like, "No, I'll have to fire people. That will be terrible. I'm really conflict avoidant. That's not a good choice. <laughs> and I just couldn't figure out what the what the move was.
0: no, had you been a person of faith before? I mean, had working as a religious figure had that been part of your of your life?
1: Well, no, I had always been a bit of a seeker. I was baptized as a baby, Catholic. My dad was married to an evangelical Christian when I was a kid and living with him, and we went to church, you know, five hours a week. And I quickly realized that that was not for me, particularly because the church we were going to, I felt like wanted me to believe that because the other kids I went to school with didn't go to our church, they were going to burn in hellfire, Mm -hmm. which didn't sound like God to me. And so... That definitely was not for me. My mom was non-practicing. My stepdad was a Sufi, you know, and so I did a lot of seeking through college. I tried being Unitarian, but I felt like even if I disagree, you should be telling me that I believe in something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tried, like, I had a set of Zen koan, you know, meditation cards. I had always been looking for something. Yeah. But, no, the idea of being a religious leader had never, uh, never occurred to me. So what happened? What changed? So. While I was sort of miserable at work, the thing that was really filling me up was I had gotten really involved in my synagogue. After converting, you know, I joined the Young Families Committee and the Ritual Committee, and I was going to adult ed classes. And I felt like the thing that really lit me up was learning and thinking and talking about Jewish stuff. And so I thought, well, I don't really have any experience in the Jewish world, but maybe I could make a transition to a Jewish nonprofit. And I started looking for, is there some sort of master's degree or something that I could get to help make that transition? So I ended up at two in the morning on the website of Hebrew Union College, which is the seminary that I eventually went to. And they were having an open house the next week. So I cut work and (laughs) went to the open house and thought, oh, no, this is really what I want to do. This is (laughs) terrible. (laughs) And I thought I wanted to do the education degree, which was three years. Uh, And what
0: would that have been?
1: It would have been... Basically, getting enough background in Jewish text and history and other things to be able to be a Jewish educator. I see. And I went to my rabbi and said, You know, I'm having this crisis. I'm thinking about going back to school for education. And she said, That's fine, but you're going to get there and look at what the rabbis are doing and realize that that's actually what you want to do. Because the day I converted, she told me, you're going to be back in five years talking to me about rabbinical school. Did she ever tell you why she had that feeling? No, but it was a good call. (laughs) But the funny thing about it was it became a joke between me and my husband. It was like, well, you know, someday when we move to Jerusalem and you become a rabbi, ha 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 ha. But she had planted this seed because she's devious. Um, (laughs) And it took me a couple extra years because we had kids. But sure enough, I was back in her office.
0: Well, you mentioned that you had a female rabbi and it's my impression that there still aren't that many women rabbis, or is that not true?
1: Right now, I would say about 50% of oh. the rabbis coming out of the reform movement, which oh. is the the movement in Judaism that I am a part of, are women. And there have been women rabbis since the nineteen seventies. So okay. we're we're getting there.
0: So that wasn't the gender issue was not part of any <clears throat> No.
1: Um when you convert, you have three clergy members who you have to, you know, talk with and are sort of a rabbinical court who decide mm-hmm. that you get to come into the Jewish people. And all of them were women in my case. So no that did not feel like a barrier to me.
0: And did being a convert present any kind of barrier to your becoming a rabbi?
1: No. Actually there are a fair number of us who become rabbis i think because we don't have a jewish education when we're kids that we hated and are resentful of yeah. right we get to come and learn about all of these amazing traditions as adults instead of you know, hating our parents <laughs> <From> making <laughs> for, us. for making us do this right. thing that we don't want to do. Right. And so there's just a lot less baggage. I that's,
0: think. that's why non-Catholics like me have a soft spot for nuns. If you didn't get wrapped on the knuckles by them, <laughs> you have much more positive yeah. attitudes yeah. towards them, perhaps. So would you say, though, that you had a vocation, a calling? Was it a sort of a mystical or a spiritual thing? Because from the outside, it seems like being a rabbi is more than a job.
1: Yes, it is more than a job. I would say I don't think I felt the calling until I was already in rabbinical school. I think when I started, I looked at these rabbis I knew who were such wonderful teachers and knew so many things. And I really love learning. And I wanted to be the person who knew all those things (laughs) and could teach all those things. And I really sort of thought probably that I would go into something like American Jewish World Service or another Jewish organization where I would be doing nonprofit work, but from the vantage point of Jewish tradition and text. And so it really, I didn't even have a very developed theology Mm -hmm. when I went into rabbinical school. And it really wasn't until I started sitting with people in two summers in chaplaincy training first in a nursing home and the second in a hospice that I really broke open my theology and started to understand what god was for me mm, wow but then by then i was really deep into the rabbi business <laughs> right <laughs> there was no turning back i guess
0: there's always some turning back but so can you explain the process by which one becomes a rabbi do you quote unquote just go to rabbinical school? And um, how long does rabbinical school take?
1: In the case of the reform movement, it takes five years. The first year is in Jerusalem. so And then there are three stateside campuses at my school. So you do your first year in Jerusalem all together as a class, and then you can either be sent to LA, Cincinnati, or New York, depending. And so at the time I went to rabbinical school, my kids were four and seven. And so the prospect of not only quitting my job and losing my income, but also moving my family to the Middle East and having my husband have to figure out what to do with his job Mm. was really daunting. And he did not think it was such a great idea (laughs) at first.
0: (laughs) So you went to Jerusalem for a year. Now, Mm -hmm. did you speak Hebrew at that point?
1: Yes. So when I was still at my law firm, I started to think about this possibility. And so I found a wonderful Hebrew teacher who came to my law firm and I started learning Hebrew. I told her, I know the alphabet, and I need to be able to pass a second-year college Hebrew exam in about a year and a half. So let's go. And she she was game, and we had a great time.
0: And am I right in thinking that the language of instruction in Jerusalem was indeed Hebrew?
1: It was. um, Some instruction was in Hebrew, and some was in English.
0: So you had to have that level for at least some of the instruction.
1: For some of the instruction and also just some of the text, right, we're reading Bible um, and other Jewish text. And so you needed that experience as well. And I have to say that learning a language at I think I was 37 when I started rabbinical school was not as easy as when I was younger. Yeah. yeah. Still often when I try to think of something in Hebrew, Spanish will come out (laughs) because that's what I learned when my brain worked well enough to learn a new language. Yeah.
2: Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
0: Okay, so then you come back to the States. Did you take the next four years in New York? In New York. Mm-hmm. And what kind of instruction?
1: Some of the instruction is in different areas of Jewish text and tradition. We had classes on Bible and on Talmud, which is sort of another area of our Jewish written tradition. And then we would have training in, you know how to write a sermon, uh-huh. and we would lead services on campus. And we had chaplaincy training in the summers usually where we would go work in hospitals or things like that.
0: And so that would be ministering to Jewish patients or Jewish whatever the situation was.
1: Actually, in chaplaincy training, we met with both Jews and non-Jews. Oh, okay. In general, the non-Jews were much more excited to talk to us because if you if you go into a room where, you know, someone is Protestant and you say, hi, I'm a chaplain. They'll say, great, can we pray? And you'll say, sure. What do you want to pray about? (laughs) If you go in a a Jewish patient's room, they will often say, oh, actually, um, I'm not very religious. You know, um, there's something Jews tend to be less comfortable praying.
0: And do the different strains of of Judaism come into that? I mean, if you were from the Reformed tradition, would that mean that some from other traditions might be less willing to work with you?
1: I'm trying to think if it ever came up. I'm sure, you know, there could have been issues. In general, I would say folks who are in pain and are getting a visit are pretty happy to have someone who whose only job is to sit and listen to them. Right. So you graduate from rabbinical school. Yep. And then what happens? So what happens in general is if you want to be a pulpit rabbi, there's a system called placement, and basically all of the reform synagogues that are looking for new rabbis come to one place and they interview the people who are available that year. and so it's then a job fair. people get it's a job fair. and then you get callbacks, right? Wow. to go spend the weekend at whatever you know, sheer Beth Shalom of Miami. So, yeah, it's very much a job market. I happened to have an internship for two years at Central Synagogue when I was in rabbinical school. And so I ended up just staying on there instead of having to go through placement.
0: So you were in that fortunate position, but I suppose there was no guarantee that you would have a job there when you had finished. So that must have created a challenge Because of where you were in your life, as people often are when they're making a change, they have a situation and whatever happens, it's going to be disrupted. Um, So how did your family deal with that possibility or were you always going to stay in New York in some sense?
1: The good news is we had five years to get used to me making no money. So, But I think you need to be flexible either in terms of the sort of job that you're looking for or the location of the job. And so in my case, I knew I wanted to stay in New York. That's where my kids were in school and where my husband had a job. And so I was pretty flexible in terms of thinking about what sorts of jobs. Mm. I actually really loved chaplaincy and so could have seen going in that direction. Again, I think – You know, I could have seen going into a place like a social justice organization as a rabbi. So I was pretty open.
0: What are the different kinds of rabbidom?
1: Let's see. What different kinds of rabbi can you be? You can be a military chaplain. So you can go work with the armed forces, you can be a hospital chaplain. You can, as I said, work for an organization, you can be a community organizer. You can be a freelance rabbi who does a lot of life cycle events like weddings Uh, and, you know, funerals and bar mitzvahs. So a rabbi for hire. A rabbi for hire. You can be an educator. Some rabbis will be heads of religious schools. So. Wow.
0: What job did you start with after your graduation?
1: So I was hired as the rabbi for small groups at Central Synagogue, which the idea of small groups sort of grew up in the Christian megachurch world. And our synagogue is very large. We have about 2,600 families. And so we want to create an environment where people feel seen and heard and known and the way we, one of the ways that we do that is to put people into small groups of ten or twelve people who get together on a regular basis. And what they do can vary from, you know, cooking out of the out of different Jewish cookbooks, mm-hmm. or having social justice conversations, or going on outings with other parents of preschool kids. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea is to help people find their people within the synagogue, so that if someone ends up going to the hospital, their group members show up for them. And I had been part of building that initiative as an intern when I was still in rabbinical school. And so I came on to sort of take that on full time when I finished. So that's grown into now my job is basically to oversee all of the adult programming. So stuff people do other than go to services Mm. is my job, although I do also lead a small Saturday morning service. But in general, you know, trips and retreats and special programs and small groups and adult education.
0: So how would you describe the kind of If this wasn't a synagogue, Mm -hmm. it sounds like it's kind of logistical work, organizing.
1: There's an aspect of my work that is sort of being a program manager. We're hiring a speaker to come give a lecture. And so we want to make sure that there's enough food and, you know, that we have room for people and that the communications are going out. So that would be similar to a lot of jobs. The part that is really unique is people who come into my office and want to talk about how they can find their way into community.
0: Right. Because despite my having said if you weren't a rabbi, you are a rabbi. And so <laughs> it is a spiritual I'm I'm a little struggling for language, but it's it's a spiritual position. It's a faith position and that is a really a central part of the work.
1: Yeah, I was having a conversation with someone recently who was talking about the idea of relational education. And she was talking about how you could use a sort of relational model to connect with people whom you were educating. And the goal of that was to create an effective educational experience for those people. And what I do, I feel like, is exactly the opposite. I think my job is to create opportunities for people to build relationships with each other and with the synagogue and with Jewish tradition. And if they will admit to God being a possibility, then maybe with God. (laughs) And so it's more that the programs have the goal of creating the relationships rather than the other way around. Uh. And so she said, but to what end? Right. I was talking to this person. She's like, but what's the... why what's the why (laughs) what's the goal what's the why if it's not to get you know people more educated Um, because I had said look if they have a great conversation about something other than the thing I want to have them have a conversation about but they care deeply about each other then that's a win right Um, and she's like why and I said because I think that's where God shows up I think that when people are really responsible to each other and loving each other and joining forces with each other toward a common good, that's where I feel God in the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's the why. So on the surface, it looks like I'm running programs, mm-hmm. um, but there it's for a, a reason. Is there a component
0: that, that extends beyond the synagogue, the relational work that you're talking about?
1: I guess here's one way of answering the question, and you can tell me whether it's a good way or not. (laughs) I've come to understand my purpose as a human being and a Jew and a rabbi as making God's love and compassion and justice manifest in the world. And so I do that in a bunch of different ways. Mm. I've done some community organizing, which is about making justice manifest in the world. I help people build these relationships because I think love and compassion are important in the world and countercultural in a really important way Mm. and a means of resistance. So yeah, to that, that seems bigger than the synagogue to me.
0: Indeed. no. From the outside, I can kind of imagine lots of similarities between the two big careers that you have had. Mm -hmm. They both involve scholarship. They both involve, as you say, listening to people's stories. They both involve kind of watching out for people's interests. Mm -hmm. What kind of similarities and differences do you see beyond those? Hmm. Or do they feel similar to you, maybe, is a bigger question.
1: There is an aspect of... The intellectual fun, and particularly when I'm wrestling with a particular text, there is a kind of fun that happens from that that is familiar to Mm -hmm. me from trying to find a good argument for a brief or making a connection between two things. Mm -hmm. So, intellectually, there's a similarity there. I'll also say that the rabbis of the Talmud. We're completely arguing like lawyers. (laughs) They use the same kind of arguments. You know, it's really it's really funny. But I would say, you know, in the personal work, the difficulty I had when I was a federal public defender and sitting across from someone was that ultimately my job was supposed to be to change the outcome of the situation that they were in, which, given that this was the height of the federal sentencing guidelines, I was often not actually in a position to do. Mm. And 95 percent of our clients pled guilty. So a lot of the times, you know, I was showing them a chart of here's your sentence if you plead Mm -hmm. guilty and Mm -hmm. here's your sentence if you don't. But ostensibly, my job was actually to make some difference in the outcome of their case. And when I'm sitting with someone who comes to me and is in pain as a rabbi, my job is not to actually change the outcome of where they are, Mm -hmm. except that maybe they will meet it with greater, you know, strength or courage or whatever. Um, But it's not fundamentally my job to change the outcome. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that's really freeing. It's really freeing. To be able to sit with someone and just realize my only job is to sit with them and let them know that I'm here f- uh-huh. I'm here for them.
0: And kind of mediate.
1: Yeah. And to say, you know what? There's not a lot of places in this world that you can sit with someone who's going to listen to you without judgment and uh-huh. let you say what you need to say. And uh, so it's a blessing.
0: So, again, as an outsider, I'm not a Jew. We hear about Jewish law. I mean, I think, you know, keeping kosher, things like mm-hmm. that. Like, there is a kind of a, like, making sure that the rules are followed. I'm, I'm kind of mm-hmm. wagging my finger here uh, almost uh, intuitively somehow. Is that a big part of your job? You know, like, telling people, mm, that's not really kosher, so to speak.
1: <laughs> um no, part of the the answer to that comes from the intellectual history of the reform movement, uh-huh. uh, which came out of the Enlightenment. And, you know, the early reformers really rejected all of those ritual rules that they thought didn't make any sense mm-hmm. and said, no, we're we're really getting to the essence of the, you know, the ethical law." And now, actually, there's really been a turnaround, and people are starting to say, well, actually, this whole idea of observing Shabbat and having a, a time during the week when you unplug your phone uh-huh. and you don't read your email, there's something to that that's really wise and important, and maybe we shouldn't have thrown that out. Yeah. Or you know, maybe the idea that you shouldn't have a chicken parm sandwich doesn't make sense to us, but the idea that when we sit down to eat, we should acknowledge where our food came from. And offer gratitude for it, and that there's an ethical responsibility to make sure that that food represents the world we want to live mm-hmm. in, that actually does make sense. And so I would say one of the goals as a Reform Rabbi is to invite people in to try out aspects of their tradition that may be meaningful for them and mm-hmm. may cause a transformation. And you know, our Jews love to tell us they're being bad Jews. <laughs> it's right. They're like, oh, I'm such a bad Jew. <laughs> but really, you know, it's not about that. It's about giving them an invitation in. And for some people, that invitation in is going to be through text study. And for some people, that invitation in is going to be through our breakfast program where we serve breakfast to our neighbors two days a week at the synagogue. And for other people, it's going to be lobbying in Albany to make systemic change and understanding, well, what does bail reform have to do with Judaism, right? So our goal is to make Jewish tradition feel relevant to people's lives and to make it make a difference in Uh, their lives.
0: What was the hardest part in the process of switching careers?
1: I have two answers. The first is I spent a long time thinking that I just must not be very good at my job if I wasn't enjoying it and being jealous of my husband who loved his job (laughs) and thinking, well, maybe I'm just really lazy. Like, maybe I just don't like working. And there's something, you know, if only I were a better person, then I would like my job more. And that it took a lot of years to get through that, Mm. to realize that not liking that job was not a moral issue. And I really had to get to a point where I believed I was good at it Mm. so that I could walk away. Because while I believed that I wasn't good at it, I had to keep trying to get better and that took a really long time. And so emotionally, that was rough. And then I would say the negotiation in my marriage about how badly I wanted this and my husband saying, well, what if you just really love school and you're going to get out of rabbinical school and realize you don't want to be a rabbi just the way you didn't want to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and do we really have to move to the Middle East? <laughs> and, you know, how badly do you want this? And it's really hard to know before you start, mm-hmm. whether it's the right thing. And it felt very high stakes.
0: Mm. And it was something that had to begin with school, that you couldn't just try it out.
1: No, there was not really. I mean, I could teach in religious school or something. I just did not. I didn't have any of the background yeah, to yeah. to do this job. And so there was really no way to do it except for going back to school. Luckily, I really love school. so. <laughs>
0: And do you have any regrets about
1: the choice that you made? Zero. I (laughs) would say right now, if someone asks me, what would you do if you could do anything? I'm doing that thing, which is, I spent a lot of years not being able to answer that. And it feels really wonderful to have that be the answer. I think the first moment that I took a step back and wondered, was when the travel ban went into effect and I saw all the lawyers running to the airports (laughs) and the justice seeker in me wanted to be the person who could go save the day in that way. And I wondered, huh, did I take myself out of a role where I could have really made a difference? And so instead I preached about it and I'm, you know, making a difference on a smaller scale maybe
0: i had just one final question but since you've just reminded me that i did want to ask you about preaching Mm -hmm. you said you preach every week every set
1: or no i actually in my role i preach i would say i don't know several times a year and then i do a text study on on some saturdays so i I I don't preach a ton how
0: do you go about that do you kind of find a text sit with it what's the process there
1: So the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, is split up into sections, each of which is assigned to one week of the year. And so any given week, there's a certain chunk of the Bible that is being read that week in Jewish synagogues around the world. And so usually I read that section and I pick what really makes me curious Or even better, what makes me angry? Because there's always something, right? There's something and it's different every year. It's the amazing thing is that every year we read the same stuff. And every year there's something else that makes me angry. And I usually find that whatever it is that's making me angry or excited or curious, I'm not the first one to have thought that. And, you know, you go back to the 14th century or the 11th century and some other rabbi has been asking this question. And that's usually where the energy is for me in a text is if I really, you know, get my back up about something. And so I usually just read it and feel for emotionally, where is it grabbing me this week?
0: And then there's a lesson to be imparted?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, I preached about Marie Kondo, the uh, <laughs> the tidying up uh, mm-hmm. guru, and you know, was talking about the observance of Shabbat and saying, you know, we can focus her. The beauty of her process is she says it's not about what you're throwing away. You have to focus on what sparks joy for you and surround yourself by that. And so, I said, well, when we think about Shabbat, we can either focus on You know, you're not supposed to drive, you're not supposed to turn the lights on, you're not supposed to use your cell phone. Or you can say for this one day, can I surround myself with things that spark joy for me, with experiences that spark joy for me? And that came out of, you know, it was the part of the Torah where we got the commandment to observe Shabbat. Uh So I was sort of thinking about that and my kids are obsessed with Marie Kondo. (laughs) So that's that's the sermon that people got that week. Got it.
0: All right. My final question for you, Nicole, which do you find funnier? And which do you find more annoying, maybe lawyer jokes or a priest, and imam, and a rabbi walk into a bar jokes?
1: Ooh, I would say I find everything about lawyers more annoying, so I'm going to go with the lawyer jokes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you made a good choice. That was obviously, uh, you made the right move. Thank you, Rabbi Nicole Auerbach. It was very, very nice to chat with you. It was
1: really a pleasure. Thank
0: you. That's it for this special bonus episode of Working, but don't worry. There are four more episodes about second actors that are available for you to listen to right now. If you have any thoughts about the show, you can write to me at workingslate.com. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Thank you very much for listening.